grab a seat. If you have a Bible, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 12 tonight. Genesis chapter 12. If you're new to Crossroad, welcome. We're glad you're here. We are doing a year-long study, or about there, therein, on Jesus, which is a good thing to study. But more specifically, how Jesus is the culmination of all things. Taking a look at Old Testament characters and showing how Jesus is truly the fulfillment of all that they are. Tonight, we look at Abraham. Now, if you don't know your Bible very well, and that's okay, uh, you could sit down and talk to somebody and say, who's the most important person in the Bible? And people would say, God, and you'd go, thank you. Next answer, okay. Who's the most important person in the Bible? You say, Jesus, Jesus is the most important person in the Bible. Okay, got it. Who's second? And you could get a lot of different answers, but basically those answers would come from one of about four people. They would go, Moses, Moses, good answer. David, good answer. Uh, the secret, the super secret answer that no one ever says that you're going to find out is Joshua. Now, a lot of people talk about Joshua, but Joshua is huge. But then Abraham might be the best answer. And you couldn't get an argument really with any of those four, but Abraham's a very good answer. How important is Abraham in understanding God's plans and purposes in the world? Very simple. There are three religions, all calling themselves the true nature of Abraham's promise. Meaning there are three religions that say, we are the people that received the promise of Abraham. Those people are Christians, us, Jews, Israel, and Muslims. So just speaking from a, a percentage, you could say roughly three to four-fifths of the earth are covered with people saying that they are the true recipients of the promise of Abraham. That's how big a deal Abraham is. Uh, to understand who Abraham is, we have to look at a lot of things tonight. We're going to be flying tonight. If you thought, man, we did Adam and Abel and Noah, man, I feel like I was drinking from a fire hose. Tonight is a tsunami, okay? So just be ready because we're going to fly through things because I want to get to where we can really understand Christ. I want to focus on Christ, but you're just going to have to follow along as best you can. This is a great one to be listening to uh, on the podcast or uh, somewhere like that. So Genesis chapter 12 is where we get our introduction to Abraham. Abraham's name originally in the Bible is Abram, starts in Genesis chapter 12. Now, very important thing. Number one, Genesis chapter 11. You're like, you said 12. No, it's 11. I'm so confused. Okay. In Genesis chapter 11, uh, the story of the Tower of Babel happens. Okay. Now, why is that important? Because you have to understand Moses is telling a story. And he, he's going through and he's telling things that happen. But the things that happen have ramifications, okay? Genesis chapter 6, the flood. Everybody dies except for a few people in a boat, right? They live. And they begin to populate out. And then eventually Genesis chapter 11 has all these people gathering together to build a tower to the name of God. Now, uh, what you see happen is that God confuses their language, confuses them. Some people say this is where races were created. We don't, that, that is pure speculation. The Bible doesn't say that. It says their languages are confused, which is why we say you're babbling, Babylon, Babel. You are babbling. And Babel is traditionally in the land of Iraq, okay? Iraq uh, is, is basically where Babylon was in the Tower of Babel, okay? So what you have happen is you have this one group of people, okay, that make it to the ark, then everybody dies, and you have this one group of people that make it to the Tower of Babel. And at the Tower of Babel, instead of killing everybody, because that's kind of God's MO in the Old Testament, just to kill them all, 
and I'll sort them out because he's God, right? So in the Tower of Babel, what God does instead is he scatters them, okay? Instead of killing everybody, he scatters them. And then in Genesis chapter 11, you have this picture of, okay, now all these people are scattered everywhere. And in Genesis chapter 12, God picks one of them and says, now you're the guy. Instead of killing everybody and having one guy, I'm going to scatter everybody and pick one guy. You see, the, you see what I'm going with here? He's picking this one dude, and this guy's name's Abram. Okay, now Abram, you're going to see, is called out from the land of Ur of the Chaldees. This is basically Babylon, same place, Iraq, okay? This is Genesis chapter 12, and this is verses 1 through 3, and this is where God calls Abram. It says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram does. He gets up, he leaves, he leaves his father's house, he leaves his homeland, he wanders from Iraq, kind of goes up. And then back down into what we call Israel now sometime. Go look at a map. There's a good reason for that. It's because everything else is desert and you die if you go across. So he goes out to Tigris and Euphrates and then comes back down into the Holy Lands. Okay, what we call the Holy Land. He stops at an oak in a tree, a big oak tree in a place called Shechem. If you're a big Bible study person, write down the word Shechem and study it. Because almost every important thing happens in the Bible happens at Shechem. Okay, cannot stress that to you enough. So then he goes into Egypt and then he comes back. And Abraham just starts wandering everywhere. You're like, didn't God say this is your place right here? Why are you, what are you doing in Egypt? Oh, I got lost. Okay, he's just wandering around. So they eventually begin to call him the wanderer. At that time, the word was Hebrew. He's a wanderer. He's a Hebrew. So he's wandering around everywhere. Well, see, Abraham, Abram doesn't have a kid. And so God's promise to him in these things is, I'm going to make you into a great nation and everybody's going to be blessed through you. Right now, Abram's going, okay, that's a great promise and everything, but here's the problem. How am I going to possess this land when I don't have a kid, when I don't have any kids? Genesis chapter 15, verse 7 and 10 says this, and he said to him, God said to him, Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans and gave you this land to possess. But he uh, Abraham said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he, God, said to him, Abram, bring me a heifer, three years old, and a female goat, three years old, and a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. That sounds like Shrek ordering dinner, doesn't it? It's like, I want a ram and a heifer and a goat and a turtle dove and a pigeon, right? And why don't they have to be three years old? I don't understand that, but that's okay. And he brought them to him, all these, cut them in half, and laid each over, each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. Now, that's kind of foreign to our thinking, but here's basically what they do. They take these animals, they cut them in half, then they take one half of them and lay them on this side, and they take the other half of them and they lay them on this side, and they make this big center aisle right down the middle of these cut-in-half animals. Now you're thinking, that's interesting, my friend. That's very interesting. I like that. I like that, right? 
Now, a few verses later in verse 17, what happens is Abraham waits all night standing there after God told him to do this. He waits all night and all these birds come down and try to eat the, the dead animals and he has to run them off. Get away, birds, quit eating my dead stuff. Okay, and they fly off. And then in verse 17, Abraham falls asleep and it says, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Now you say, okay, that doesn't make sense to me. What's that about? Well, in the Old uh, Testament, especially in the early Old Testament, before Moses comes, before the law is established, this is the way you would make a covenant with someone. You'd make a covenant by killing an animal and saying, okay, we're killing this animal and here's the deal. We're gonna walk between the animal and where our covenant is sealed. So Abraham has a vision of cutting the animal in half and God walks between the animals and then Abraham goes, okay, God has sworn a covenant with me. Basically, to put it in our thing, this would be like Abraham falling asleep and having a dream of God coming and signing a contract, okay? That's the picture. To me and you, we kind of go, that doesn't make sense. But the picture you're supposed to get is from Abraham's time. In Abraham's time, this is how you entered into a contract with someone. So, so Abraham says, God, how do I know this is going to happen? And God says, okay, let's go through the covenant. Let's go through the contract of your time. I'll sign a contract with you what we call a covenant. This is how it's going to happen. But still the problem beholds that Abraham does not have a child, okay? So in, verse, in, in Genesis chapter 17, this is two chapters later, Genesis chapter 17, God comes to him and says, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram. Do you remember when we studied Adam and I told you the name Adam is really the same word as the word man. So when you read in the Bible and it says, and God created man, in Hebrew it just says, and God created Adam. So Adam's name is really just man, and man is really just Adam. That's the picture, and there's a reason for that. If you didn't hear that, you need to go listen to the first one. Well, the word Abram is just the word for father. Okay, the word Abram is just the word for father. So see the play on words here. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father, you shall be the Abram of a multitude of nations. But no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. Now the word Abraham means the father of a multitude. Means the father of many. And see what he says, for you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. See, it, it's like this repetitive kind of thing. All right, and so... Abraham's going, okay, so I'm supposed to be the father of these guys. I still don't have a kid. I'm supposed to own this land. You've sworn a covenant with me that I'm going to possess this land, but I still don't know how. So God has sworn a covenant with Abraham and, and sent a torch in a fiery pot, that, which I'm going to explain to you later. But now he goes to Abraham. He goes, okay, now you have to swear something to me. And Abraham goes, okay. See, God says, here's my part. Cut this in half. I'll walk through it. Now you know that you're my covenant. But Abraham, here's what I'm going to ask you to do to show me that you're in the covenant with me. God's part, cut the animals in half, I'll walk through them, okay? Now your part, Abraham. And in verse seven, chapter 17, verses 10 and 11, here's what Abraham is supposed to do. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. All right, adults, get ready. Okay, because if you know what circumcision means, you're always going, please don't be descriptive, but I'm going to be, okay? This is removing a very fleshy part of the penis, okay? Now you go, <laughs> okay, 
but there's a, if you read the rest of 17, it even goes further than this. It says, you will be circumcised. Your children will be circumcised. It even says, if you buy a slave in the land, you have to circumcise him. Now, how would you like to be that slave? Okay, like you're this slave and you've got this, you've got this guy who owns your debt. And you're working for him because you owe debt. He says, hey, I'm going to sell your debt to this guy so you become his slave. And he goes, well, you've been a good master to me. And I know that when I work off my debt, this man will let me go. And the guy goes, yeah, there's this one thing they do you've got to know about. Do what? You know, he's going to do what? Okay. But in Genesis chapter 17, verse 14, here's where God continues. He says, but any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off. And the word circumcised just means cut off, which, okay. But he shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. He shall be, cir- he shall be cut off. If he doesn't cut off his flesh of his foreskin, he will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God says, here's my part. Cut the animals in half. I'll walk between them. Abraham, here's your part. Circumcise your foreskin. Again, I'll explain to you why that is in a little while. Let's mean you're here going, I'd really like to know right now. But you got to wait. Genesis chapter 18. Abraham continues to wander through the land. And at one point, comes to a place where he sees the angel of the Lord, sees three men walking. Some people call that a theophany, saying it's the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit taking bodily form. Probably a little, reading a little too much into that. But the angel of the Lord comes to him, and they're going to a place, two places actually, called Sodom and Gomorrah. And they are saying, when we go to Sodom and Gomorrah, we're going to destroy the place. We're going to blow the whole place up. We're killing everybody. And Abraham says in chapter 18 of Genesis, begins to bargain with God and says, okay, I know you're God. And you really should read it at some point. If you want to, that's Genesis 18, 22 through 33. Begins to bargain almost with God saying, okay, really? Are you going to blow up the whole place? Say there's, say there's 50 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah. Are you going to kill everybody in for, if there's 50 righteous people, are you going to kill everybody, including 50 righteous people? And God says, if there's 50 righteous people, I won't, I won't kill everybody. I won't blow the place up. And Abraham goes, well, I mean, what if out of those 50, like five aren't righteous? Would you really kill everybody for 45? And God goes, if there's 45, I won't do it. And Abraham goes, what if there's 30? I'm just, let's throw out some numbers here. What if there's 30 righteous people? Would you kill everybody for 30? And God says, I won't do it for 30. Abraham goes, and Abraham, as he goes along, he gets more and more, um, the word is obsequious. He starts going, oh, great Lord, I am dust, and you are great, and I should not even speak, and I'm going to be quiet, but what if there was 30? I mean, 20. Let's go with 20. That's a good number, but I'm dirt. Don't kill me. And God says, for 20, I won't do it. And they keep going down to 10. And the kind of the idea you get is that if Abraham had bargained all the way down to one, God would have kept going with him. Okay. I'll give you a picture of this in Genesis chapter 18, verse 28. This is one of the places he says, after he's asked him for 50, he says, but suppose that five of the 50 of the righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he, God said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. So we see Abraham interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, Abraham is one of these guys that we could, I could seriously do a month to six weeks on Abraham. 
But tonight, the things that we're going to focus on are the promise, the circumcision of his flesh, his interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah, and uh, the covenants made between him and God. And the reason we're going to look at those is because Jesus is the true and better Abraham. Jesus is the true and better Abraham. Why is that? Here's why. Number one, where Abraham's circumcision was of the flesh, Christ's circumcision is of the heart. Where Abraham's circumcision was of the flesh, Christ's circumcision was of the heart. If you have a Bible with you, open it up to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. As you're turning there, I'll tell you a little joke someone made at my expense this week. It was funny. This guy's dead now. He wanted to start playing church bingo around the office. You know how you play like, like have you ever seen those commercials where they're at an office meeting and they put the words that people say all the time and they play bingo? He's like, we need to find something that people say all the time. He looked at me and goes, well, for you, it's Romans. Like when you're talking, you're going to say Romans in every conversation. So, ha, 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 ha. So now I'm going to teach Romans until you throw up. Okay. Romans chapter two, verse 25. If you have a Bible with you tonight, you really need to look at it in your Bible. Okay. Turn there. If you didn't bring one tonight, that's cool. But Paul is beginning to build his argument for why you need Christ and not the law. And this is what he says about circumcision in Romans chapter two, verses 25 through 29. Now I will go along with you and explain this as we go, because the argument builds and builds and builds. Okay. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. See, the Jews of Paul's time said this. We know we're going to heaven because we have the sign of Abraham in us. We're all circumcised. To the Jews, it boiled down to a very simple outward fact. If you're circumcised, you're in. If you're not circumcised, you're out, period. Doesn't matter what you do. Circumcised in, uncircumcised out. That simple. In the modern church, by the way, in a lot of ways, we have replaced this picture of circumcision with baptism. I'm baptized. I'm good. No. Paul's whole point is it has nothing to do with that. Paul's telling the Jews, what if you are circumcised, but you break the law? You are totally breaking the law. Then your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? But you never thought you'd hear this word this much, right? See, Paul's thing, he's going, if you're circumcised and you're breaking the law, you might as well be uncircumcised. And if you're uncircumcised and you're keeping the precepts of the law, you're basically circumcised. This is Paul's whole point. Now, here's where the whole argument turns. He says this in verse 27. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. Verse 28, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, meaning just the flesh is cut away. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward 
and physical. Oh, I cannot stress to you enough getting that verse. So much of shallow, fake, stupid, American evangelical Christianity is outward and physical. I go to church. I go to Sunday school. I work with the right ministries on campus. I said the sinner's prayer. I tithe. I'm awesome. You're going to hell. You see, outwardness has nothing to do with inwardness. True Christianity manifests itself in outward deeds. That is true. Because the other side of the coin that's going to hell, the people are going, no, I know. Let me tell you the doctrines of Christ. I can name six. Which, ver- which version of redemption uh, theology do you want? Let me give you the 12 pictures. By the way, I'm what you call a superlapsarian, antinomian, amillennial Christian. Okay, shut up. What have you done today besides read a book? Because James says your religion is worthless unless you feed the widows and the orphans. So there's a middle ground between these two pictures. And what Paul's trying to say here is no one is one who is merely, see merely, merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision physical and outward. Verse 29, but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. His praise is not from man, but from God. Play on words here. Jew. Why are they called Hebrews and Jews? Which one's right? They're called Israelites. They're called Jews. They're called Hebrews. Which one's right? Where do they all come from? Hebrew. Hebrew comes from Abraham, the wanderer. That's what it means. The wanderer. Hebrew. If you come from Abraham, you are one of the people who wandered. You are, you are uh, a Hebrew. Israel. Israelite. Israelite comes from uh, Jacob. Uh, when you have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's name is changed into Israel. And everyone that comes through Jacob becomes an Israelite. They are the ones the covenant comes through. Jew. Where does Jew come from? Jew comes from Israel's son, Jacob's son, Judah. Israel, after David and Solomon has a civil war, And they split. And you have the northern tribes, which are called, they retain the name Israel. And it's all the northern tribes, 10 of them, against two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin. Because of that, people begin to say, well, I'm an Israelite. And people say, well, I am a Judean. But Israel is destroyed about 100 years before Judeans were. So the name Jew just began to stick. They're Judean, Jew. Judah means praise. The word Judah means praise. So what's he saying here? A Jew, his praise, his Jewishness, you seeing it? Jew, praise. His Jewishness is not from man, but from God. That's the picture. See, what Paul is boiling this whole argument down to is this. Why, picture this, 
God comes to Abraham and says, I am making a covenant with you that you are going to become a great nation. And here's how I want to show you you're going to become a great nation. You have to keep my covenant. So Abraham, a year from now, I'm going to come back and you're going to have a son. Not a freak son through some 20-year-old, but through your 90-year-old wife. Abraham is a 99 years old. Sarah is 90. He says, you're going to have a wife through an, a 90-year-old woman. And think 90-year-old woman, okay? He says, you're going to have a wife there. And Abraham says, this is impossible. How do I know this is going to happen? God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to cut off a part of your penis. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're supposed to father a child, this presents a problem. Are you with me? Now you say, I'm getting uncomfortable. Move to the next point. But this is the central point because God makes a covenant with Abraham and then instantly makes it impossible for Abraham to fulfill by his own strength. He waits till Abraham is 90. He waits till Sarah is, uh, he waits till Abraham is 100. He waits till Sarah is 90, then asks Abraham to cut a part of it off and says, now I'll make you the father of a nation. Are you serious? Are you seeing the ludicrousness of this? Paul does. In Romans chapter four, verses 19, he says this. He did not, talking about Abraham, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. Since he was about 100 years old or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Let me tell you something. If you're a woman and you're trying to have a baby your whole life, which is how Hebrew women got their social status. If you didn't have a son of your own, you were in big trouble. If you've been trying your whole life to have a kid, when you hit 90, you've pretty much bailed on that idea. <laughs> he says, you're good to, as a matter of fact, when they, when they come back and tell him, when God says, you're going to have a kid, both Abraham and Sarah start laughing. God says, next year I'm going to come back, you'll have a kid. And they go, <laughs> it's good. It's good. <laughs> so God goes, not only are you going to have a kid, but you're going to name him Isaac. And you know what Isaac means? He laughs. The name Isaac means laughter. So the whole life they'd have to go, Isaac. Oh, gosh. We laughed. You're right. Now we're 100 chasing him. He's two. Come here, boy. <laughs> I don't know if they had those back then, but I don't know. They probably had servants to chase him down. You see, Christ's circumcision is a circumcision in the heart which cuts away your ability to save yourself. Jonathan Edwards called this the evangelical humiliation. Big words. Basic idea is this. If you haven't figured out you couldn't save yourself, you probably never received Christ really. Because until you know how dead you are in sin, you probably have never really become a Christian. Until you knew how dead you were in sin, you probably have never really met Jesus. You see, in Ezekiel chapter 11, God promises us. He says, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh. Do you see the picture? 
I'll remove that flesh and give them a heart of flesh. I will remove their heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Where God circumcised Abraham in the flesh and said, you will not be able to do this. Christ's circumcision is at the heart so that inwardly you realize what Abraham realized physically, that Christ is your only real chance. Why is that so? Number two, where Abraham interceded for the sake of 10 righteous men, Christ became one perfect man. Where Abraham interceded for the sake of 10 righteous men, Abraham, Christ became one perfect man. Now that seems like splitting hairs, especially in our time. But you have to realize that you could honestly say that besides the love God who loves everybody, the greatest misunderstanding of our culture regarding what God really says is they say God says be good. If you're good, God loves you and you're going to heaven. False, 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 false. God has one standard and it's not good, it's perfect. Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter five, verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. God's standard is not good, it's perfect. You have one sin, you're dead, one. And by the way, John says, if you claim to be without sin, you're a liar which is a sin. Welcome to the club. <laughs> this is a horrible lie of the enemy that good is good enough. Standard is perfection. You see, even Paul, I want you to think about who I'm talking about here. Paul, the guy who pleaded for Christ, the guy who said, I want no righteousness of my own. I look only for Christ. This is Philippians chapter three. Read it sometime. He said, I have no righteousness of my own that comes from the law. I want to know Christ and the power of his crucifixion that somehow I might obtain the, the resurrection from the dead. In that same speech, Paul says, Paul, who had no illusions of his own sinfulness, Paul said, according to the law, I am blameless. Paul himself said, according to the law, I am blameless and still knew he was going to hell because he knew he wasn't perfect. But Jesus became perfect. If you looked up the word perfect in the New Testament, the place you would find it the most is in the book of Hebrews. And in almost every one of those, it's describing Jesus. Perfect. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10, Jesus became perfect through suffering. 5, 9, Jesus having been made perfect. Chapter 7 verse 19, the law makes nothing perfect. Here's an example. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 28, for the law appoints men and their weaknesses as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, that's really irregardless of anything, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. 
appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. If God was going to spare Sodom and Gomorrah for 10 righteous men, how much more will he spare the world for one perfect man? Where Abraham intercedes and says, God, for the sake of 10 righteous men, will you not destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? And God says, yes. Christ stands before God and says, I was perfect for my sake. Will you not destroy everyone? And God says, absolutely. Where Abraham interceded for 10 righteous men, Christ became one perfect man. Because ultimately, number three, where Abraham was given a promise, Jesus is the promise. Where Abraham was given a promise, Jesus is the promise. Now, back in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 3, we'll put them up on the board for you. I want to look at three things in this promise, and I want you to see Jesus tonight. He says this to Abraham. Now, the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house into the land that I will show you. If you're taking notes tonight, you write down number one, go from your father's house. Write that down. Go from your father's house. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Write down, blessed to be a blessing. Number two, blessed to be a blessing. Number three, verse three, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. Put down, blessed, blessings to those who bless curses to those who curse. So the three things, go from your father's house. Number two, blessed to be a blessing. Number three, bless those who bless, curse those who curse. Now let me break those down for you. Number one, where Abraham left Babylon, Jesus left heaven. Where Abraham left Babylon, that was his father's house. Jesus left heaven. Do you want to guarantee that when you die, you're going to go be with Jesus? Okay. Listen to what Jesus prays in John chapter 17. In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying for his disciples. And then he makes an interesting switch. And he says this, and I want you to hear it. He says this, now I'm going to pray for those who will believe in me through these. Meaning, these 12 guys are going to go out and spread the word. Now I'm going to pray for the people that will hear about me through them. Guess who that is? You. You ever want to see where Jesus prayed for you? John chapter 17. And this is what he prays. In John chapter 17, verse 24, he says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. See, Jesus is saying, here's the deal. I left this to come to you. And I want them to get to come see me where I came from. When you die, you're going to go to where Jesus is right now because he's waiting on you to come go. Isn't this cool? I left this for you. High five. So that you will see the glory of his righteousness, his mercies toward you, his love toward you. Who leaves heaven to come here to get killed for you. 
Abraham left and wandered around. Jesus left, wandered around, and got killed. Abraham lived to a ripe old age and died. Jesus is the promise. He is the promised land. He is the place you're going. Because where Abraham left Babylon, Jesus left heaven too. Uh, he's a blessing. You will be a blessing. Galatians chapter 3 verse 14 says this. In Christ, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Jesus is the agency through which the promise of Abraham comes. Why can Christians know that they are the ones who are the true children of Abraham? Father Abraham had many sons. How many sons have Father Abraham? I'm one of them. So are you. So let's just praise the Lord, right? How many of y'all got the Facebook thing today and went, that was funny, right? I got people writing me back going, what are you talking about? I was like, didn't go to VBS, okay? <laughs> and mark them down. The blessing comes to Christians. Ephesians 1.3 says this, Blessed be the Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Meaning it is impossible for you, impossible for you to be any more blessed by God than you already are if you know Jesus here tonight. He has given you every spiritual blessing. There is nothing left. If you're saying to yourself, well, I just wish God would just give me just a little bit more spiritual blessing, just a more, and then I'd make it. God's going, I got nothing left. Zero, tapped out. God tapped out. I've given you everything you need. It's all yours in Christ. You just don't see it all yet. See, Abraham gets to the promised land, walks around and goes, yeah, this is awesome. Too bad I don't have any kids to take this land Good job. When he finally gets to the place where God goes, now I'm going to give you family, God goes, okay, now you're 100. Cut off a part of your penis. You're going, okay, how am I going to do this? You're walking around. I'm walking around now going, I'm a Christian. I'm supposed to be a child of God. I'm supposed to have the Holy Spirit living in me. I'm supposed to be this awesome righteousness machine in a land full of sinners. They're all doing awesome. I suck at everything. They make fun of me all the time. And it seems like every story on the news is about how I'm stupid and they've proven that Jesus was a donkey. <laughs> and God's going, you are just Abraham walking around a place that's going to be yours. You just don't see how yet. And when you do see how, I promise you, you are going to be like Abraham on the ground laughing at how awesome I am. Because Jesus is the true and better Abraham. Because Jesus is the true and better Abraham. In John chapter 8, verse 56, Jesus told the Jews, he said, Abraham desired to see me, and when he did, he was glad. And they go, what are you talking about? You're not even 40. Abraham lived a thousand years ago. And Jesus goes, I'm God. And they go, let's kill him. <laughs> Matthew chapter 11, verse 6, John the Baptist loses faith. And he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, saying, are you the one or should we look for somebody else? 
Are you finally him? Are you finally our blessing? And Jesus answers him and says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. And that brings us to number three, blessings to those who bless and curses to those who curse. See, Jesus himself, the two main authors of the New Testament, Peter and Paul, come down and say the exact same thing in the exact same way. First, Paul. In Romans chapter 9, verse 32 and 33, he says this, why? Meaning, why did the Jews fall away? Why don't more Jews believe in Jesus is the question he's answering. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it was based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it was written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, but whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 6 through 8, says this, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, for it stands in scriptures, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but to those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. You see, if you start talking about Jesus, there's either two ways people react. And we try to make it like it's not going to happen. And we try to make church where it's not going to offend people. And they're not going to get mad. And everybody can hold hands and be happy. But the authors of the Bible didn't see it that way. They said, here's how people are going to react to Jesus. They're either going to be blessed and believe in him. Or they're going to be offended and curse him. And what they don't get is that in their cursing, they are cursing the cornerstone of the building God is building. Paul summed it up very nicely in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. He says this, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. That's the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean that we go out screaming in people's faces and trying to set them on fire to give them a little taste of hell. That's not the kind of offensive we're talking about. But if you sit down with somebody you love and you've done this and let my words speak to your experience, not to what I'm saying, to your experience, somebody that you love and care for and sat down and started trying to tell them about Jesus and as lovingly and kindly as you can present Jesus Christ who died for their sins to them and watch them get furious. Am I lying? Because it, the flesh, the sinful nature, the devil hate Jesus. And no matter what you do, no matter how loving you are, if you present the gospel right, and I don't mean mean, the enemies of God will always hate it. And they will hate you for it. So, 
what do we do? Well, we remember what God did for us. See, if you go back and you look at, at the Genesis verses where Shrek is ordering. He says to him, bring me a heifer three years old and a female goat three years old and a ram three years old and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And these he brought to him and he cut them in half and he laid them against each other. He cuts the animals in half and he puts half of them there and they make a big aisle and they walk down the aisle. And if you remember later on the same verse, it says, and then the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passes between the pieces. In the Old Testament, one of the most common symbols for the presence of God is fire. When Moses first meets God, it's at the burning bush. When Israel follows what? Through the night, a pillar of fire. When they come to Mount Sinai and God gives them the covenant, it is described that the mountain is on fire. This picture is these animals are cut up and laid in half and God walks through them. This fire walks through them. And you say, okay, he made a contract. You've already explained that to us. But why I didn't explain to you is what the symbolism was. Because the symbolism was this. If I break my covenant with you, let what was done to these animals be done to me. You can look all through the Old Testament. You can even up to the time of Saul before David. At one point, Israel's going to war and Saul takes an ox and he cuts it into pieces and he sends riders all over Israel with pieces of this ox. And their message is this to all the men who are able to fight. If you don't come, this is going to happen to you. Everybody went. When you walked through the quartered animals, the promise you were making is this is my vow. If I break my word to you, let this be done to me. But see, God doesn't break his covenants. We do. And when someone walked through a covenant with you, the picture was this. If you fail on your part, this is going to be done to you. If I fail on my part, you do it to me. God never breaks his covenant, but you break them every minute. So what God should have done is cut you into pieces and spread you out. But he didn't. He did it to himself. See, Jesus is the true and better Abraham because before Abraham received a promise that God would keep his covenant, Christ not only kept the covenant, but kept the punishment for breaking the covenant for those who did. I'll keep my part of the covenant. I'll be the blessing of Abraham to you. And you, in me, you will be blessed. In me, you will become a nation. You'll become a people. And if you break the covenant, I'll take that part too. Why do we, where do you get the strength to walk through being hated? You get it from knowing that there is truly no one but Jesus for you. You get it by knowing that truly there is nowhere to go. For he has kept the covenant and he has taken your punishment for breaking it. Jesus is the true and better Abraham. Let me pray and then let's worship. Our Father and God, we come to you and we say to you, blessed be your name. 
Blessed be you for keeping the fullness of who you are. Blessed be you for creating the covenant, keeping the covenant, and taking the punishment for breaking the covenant. Father, I pray that you would remind us that though Abraham was dead, you did in him what only a live man can do. And Father, I pray that you remind us tonight that in Christ, we are alive. You took dead people and made them alive. I pray that as we worship your son, we would remember these things, that we would focus on them, that worshiping Jesus would not just be something we do outwardly, but do it inwardly. Let our praise be inward. That we would remember, like the prodigal, we were dead, but now we are alive. And the father says, get a robe and a ring and kill the feasting animals because my child who is dead is alive. All this through Christ, our true and better Abraham. We praise his name. Amen.